Welcome to the SNK Library Podcast. We're your hosts, Christy and Spencer. Today we're going to be discussing one of my favorite sci-fi novels that Spencer hasn't read, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. And we're just going to jump right into it. So Spencer, what were your thoughts on this novel? Um, well, reading it for the first time, I well, I certainly enjoyed it, to, to say the least. I have seen the movie before, and I know that we'll talk much more about the movie when we decide to do kind of like our whole movie adaptation rundown. Yeah, it's gonna suck, but that's okay. We'll, we'll talk about, I'll rant about the terribleness of the movie later. Um, but I, no, I, I really enjoyed the book. Sci-fi is certainly one of my favorite genres, as you well know. I do. Uh, I did take some notes as I went through, although I was not as formulaic with my note-taking as I would have hoped to have been, or maybe that <laughs> I will be in the future. I don't know. I I definitely sprinted through the last half of the book. Because you're so... like, what's gonna happen? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I guess I'll just go through some of the observations that I had. Okay. Um, the, the first thing that I was struck by is the age of the characters and how early on in the, in the story it starts, because I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about the movie, but again, like my context for it was, was within that. Yeah. And uh, they are 11 in that and it starts off and they're six. Yeah. These are six year olds. As per Ender usual, is six. the movie like halves people or doubles rather people's ages from from what book ages usually are yeah well they condense it into one year when this book actually spans yeah five or six years of this kid's life so ender's game right ender or andrew wiggin yeah is is six and it goes until he's like 11 or 12 and so yeah condensing six years of life into one. Exactly. Again, we're not going to rant about the movie it's, right now. No, but, but, but it but. just gives me a very clear mental, like a fun mental picture actually, because it's like, here's this six-year-old, which in my head is just does this instant conversion of like, okay, so this is like a kindergarten first grader. Yep. Like, whoa. <laughs> like, okay. I know, do you then compare it to like the kindergarteners and first graders that you work with? Yeah, so it's... And it, you're like, they cannot do that, computational that, mathematics like Ender can. That's the funny thing ab- about <laughs> it, is is like imagining those like cute kids and like the, the super genius level of like, whoa, that'd be scary kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. Definitely. Um, let's see. One of the interesting ideas that they had uh, throughout was this idea or concept of winning all of the fights now, like winning yes. all of the future fights in this moment. That's something that like was obvious to Ender, but also was really, really important for the conclusion of the book. Yes. I don't know. Are we doing spoilers? Do we spoil the... We're still doing spoilers. We're just going to talk about this. So if you haven't read the novel and don't want to spoil it for yourself, then you should just stop listening, go read the book, and then come back and listen to this because... All the spoilers are going to happen. Okay, I I wasn't even sure about that. So, (laughs) no, because it's really important for the conclusion of the book because that's what allows, like, Ender's mentality of that is what allows him to actually, like, win and defeat the aliens. No, it is. It's that idea of, and you see it repeatedly. You see it with Stilson at the very beginning. You Mm -hmm. see it with Bonzo in the middle. And then you see it with the buggers at the end is... 
he doesn't want to be as I guess vicious as he has to be. Right. But he's like, I he, don't want to get very bullied. Much, yeah, is he views it as a necessary evil, but he, yes. he very much is he's very self aware of like this is not really me. This is not my like this is not who I would choose to be. Like I almost feel forced into this by yeah. my circumstances and this and that. Um, but there's also a piece of it where like he he does decide like this is a better way to like this is a better future like i'm going to do this once and then i never have to fight this fight again and that's better so it's yeah, interesting which is very interesting from a psychological perspective which is another reason that i love this and thought it would appeal to you is because of the psychology behind it mm-hmm. and the psychology of like how he thinks and i'm going okay how many people in their life have to think like that in some way is like they're going okay i didn't want to react like this i didn't want to whatever but they're backed into a corner and it's going survival here Mm -hmm. and so it's that's really interesting and i also think it's thoughts like that which make it so easy to forget that ender is only six sure because that feels like almost a more because it's a conscious thought it feels more like an adult thing I feel like kids would maybe instinctively do it, but not really have thought, like, I'm doing it for this reason. Sure. And so I think that's why we it's so easy to forget that Ender is only six. Mm-hmm. And let's see. So bouncing to, like, kind of the handlers and the schools and all that kind of stuff is there's a bunch of different things going on with them. Yeah. Um, so for one, I think it's interesting all the different things that they hide from Ender and, like, decide, like, he doesn't need to know about this, despite the fact that he is, like, this super genius and can handle all of these different scenarios and information and all of the things. It's interesting that they, like, decide to hide the, the people that he killed, right? It's yeah. like when he kills Stilson, when he kills Bonzo... It's like he doesn't find out until much, much, much later that those were... Like, he kind of sort of had a, a feeling on it, but yeah. he didn't know that factually, whereas the, like that was something that they very much covered up. Well, I I'm, wrote that in my notes of thinking, it's interesting that we don't find out until the very end for sure that they're both dead. Yeah. Like, you have your suspicions with Bonzo, uh-huh. but I didn't have any suspicions about Stilson because... Sure. Right? Like, it felt like, okay, he just kind of broke some bones and, you know, broke his nose. But it's like, no, actually. Whereas Uh with Bonzo, it felt more extreme. And they're definitely, you're like, I think he might be dead. But at the end, it reveals they're both dead. And you're like, what? But it was written in such a way that it was like, you know, he got sent back to Spain or something like that. So, like, there was a piece of it that wasn't, like, explicitly, like, the idea that he was buried. It was just that they made, they... You know, the the author left it vague as to what had happened until later on. It's true. Um, let's see. The other thing, too, is, like, within the handlers and everything is the concern, and I think that there's there might be... I'm not going to make a social commentary on this, but I wonder <laughs> if there is a social commentary somewhere inside of the concept that they are not just concerned about, like, the kids' student their like abilities as a student and their test scores and aptitude and things that they're really really concerned with them having the right motivation and temperament as well yeah so that's i don't know like i said i'm not going to make a social commentary there but i i think that there might be one in there somewhere of being concerned just as much about the temperament and the motivations for the person 
because you saw that with both of Ender's siblings, yeah. right? Is that neither one of them made it to that prime position that Ender did based off of that. Is it it wasn't because they weren't able to, because no. they had the functional ability. Yeah. It was the like the will to actually do things that way. Yeah, well cuz you have the kind of almost in some ways it starts off as showing them as extremes, right? You have Peter who's like extremely vicious and you have Valentine who's initially portrayed as like super super sweet, super super loving. And then as the story goes on, you see this intersection of the two of them and how actually them spending more time together as they're doing the Demosthenes and Locke piece of yes. them, of softening of Peter and the more viciousness mm-hmm. of Valentine coming out. And so it was interesting to see how both of them actually, if they had been almost nurtured in a different way, that either one of them could also have been fine in battle school. It's just that Ender ended up being the one that they first saw having that balance because he had the viciousness of Peter playing into him along with the loving sweetness of Valentine. Sure, and that's a a thing too, is like there's a piece of it where like maybe he was able to strike the balance because the two extremes were already occupied, right? It's like part of him figuring out who he was and... uh, his interactions like within his own family and everything was being the middle point between the two. Yeah. Um, and the whole Demosthenes and Locke thing was interesting too, is like these kids that are doing all this political theory and writing and the, the way that they're, and not only that, but the way that they get to be where they're so big that they can't fail. Right. Yeah. Like they get that like company status of like too big to fail kind mm-hmm. of deal. Where, like, even if they were revealed of who they are and everything, it it wouldn't really matter because they have too much of a following. People are too devoted to, like, what they have to say in each side. Also, the decision to have them kind of write opposites of what their normal personality would be. I was curious. Do you have any thoughts on why that was the case? Um, I think Peter initially did it because he wanted to be able to control... Um, Valentine. Valentine a little bit and what Valentine said. And I think he also recognized that he needed some of her softening. Yeah. And so I think he wanted to make it, right? Because he is a very calculating person. Mm -hmm. And there are different points where Valentine's like, did Peter intentionally let me catch him doing this? Did he hide this, but pretend to like be like, oh no, you caught me, in order to manipulate? Like, there's a lot of manipulation that happens throughout the whole story in. From di- everybody from, to everybody. Yes, exactly. From everyone to everyone, right? So Because uh, Peter is really scary, right? Like the, He's incredibly manipulative mm-hmm. of the parents of the situation yeah. of his sister and his brother well, like the constant threat of violence and everything from him too is like how serious is he really like do yeah. we because we never really see it enacted ever yeah. but the threat never seems like it, it like it always seems like a legitimate threat to the other characters so yeah. it, there's kind of, it's kind of curious too because that's the how long can he continue making the same threats and then like not be carried out but at the same time he's kind of just scary enough like with the you know killing squirrels and all the rest of it that it's just like yeah, yeah. this he he's he got some issues unhinged. yeah well it's also interesting how the parents don't freaking notice yeah 
or don't realize. Like, they they obviously know their son is a little bit harsher and their daughter's a little bit softer. Well, they know their kids are special, but it doesn't seem like that they have, like, any special attention or anything mm -hmm. to them that would, like, be expected for the level that their kids are at kind of thing. Yeah, well, and that their kids are expected to just, like, be in normal school mm -hmm. and be in age-appropriate, like, they're age-appropriate classes, but the kids, they're both brilliant. Yeah. As seen by the fact that they end up writing as the Demonsonese in Locke. Yeah. And I'm going, maybe it's because I'm not a parent, so I don't know what you're like, I'm just going to let my kids kind of just be kids over here and uh -huh. not pay attention to that. Um, so I'm not wanting to judge the parents too harshly because I'm not a parent, but... That idea of how how are they so oblivious to so much of their children, uh -huh. and also how are they? I mean, they see the. That being said, they seem rather absent in the book, and that could be a that could be just a function of like what the focus of the story is on. It could yeah. just not give you any of like the daily life fluff that actually happens as a result of like give us the biggest, most dramatic pieces of their lives. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, to make it not a 10,000-page novel. <laughs> but at the same time, there's a piece of it where it's like, they're they're absent to the point that it's just like how, like, these kids can just get up to whatever they want, including, like, pulling strings on nations and things with their yes. political writings without their parents really being, like, aware of it. In fact... Because that's one of the things, too, is, like, their parents, her dad in particular, Valentine's dad, uh, like, follows the, the one's writing. So her writing, he, yeah, yeah. is he likes Demonstrates. <laughs> I know, I'm struggling to say that word, name, too. Demonstrates. Yeah, is following those writings as well. Mm -hmm. um, and which is interesting because she's, like, I would naturally be the opposite. She's writing, like, kind of the opposing sides viewpoints, and the, that's what her dad actually gravitates to. Yeah, and she's like, oh, Dad. It's one of those almost like, oh, bless your heart moments. Yeah. I will say that I would like to have more world building. Like, I don't, I don't think that it needed to be an Ender's Game. It didn't necessarily serve the story. Um, but the opening up of the topic of the compliant nations and non-compliant nations and what that kind of means uh, was something that was like touched on but I don't know that it was like gone into deeply enough for me to be satisfied with like I would yeah. like almost more on how all of that works yeah and how they had to get special dispensation in order to have a third child and things like that well and there's clearly like different nations or leagues of nations still on earth despite the like space like the interstellar nature of of planet earth at that time as yeah. well yeah i don't know there's a lot of pieces and maybe it's because ender's game was not the first one made so maybe orson scott card like um explains some of that in the other ones that technically chronologically come later uh -huh. but were written first because i feel like he wrote speaker for the dead and Xenocide and all of those ones. Really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he wrote a couple of those ones first. And then he wrote Ender's Game, and then you have Ender's Shadow, and then you have, like, the Ender's Shadow tangent series, um, which is about Bean, yeah. right? So Ender's Shadow is about Bean, and 
I remember reading that one. So this is a side tangent. I remember reading that one and being like, all right, when is he going to meet Ender? Uh-huh. And it doesn't happen until three-fourths of the way through the book. And sure. I was sitting on edge waiting and waiting and waiting. And I was, So if you ever read Ender's Shadow, just know Ender does not show up until three-fourths of the way through the book. The first 75% are just Bean going through his stuff. And that one is much more philosophical, whereas mm-hmm. Ender's game is definitely more psychological. So. Yeah. No, but I was interested in the whole compliant, non-compliant. That was one, one thing that I had written down in particular. Like, who would live in a... Like, if you were not following it somehow, would you ever live in a non-compliant... Or in a compliant nation? Would a non-compliant family <laughs> ever live in a compliant nation? Like... Because you have Ender's family that got their special dispensation and everything. Yeah. But there's not a, a lot that they're, like, were non-compliant about. But there was the whole question of religion and Christianity in there, of, like, that playing a part in compliance. And so that was just a, a curiosity of mine of how all of that, like, worked out. Uh, whether people would actually live in a non-compliant nation even just on the level of like what their freedoms are and what they're allowed to do because it seems like more authoritarian um overall yeah i don't know about that one right obviously ender's parents were from non-compliant families and so they're like so obsessed with becoming compliant and being compliant within their society yeah um, it seems like there's a huge fear of rejection mm-hmm. within both of Ender's parents, and that fear of rejection has cost them their relationship with their youngest son, mm-hmm. right? Like, ultimately having a third, despite having government right dispensation to do so, they're like, it puts us out of compliance, technically, by having a third child. and And so there's like a they want to almost get rid of him in that sense so that it's not like, okay, we failed, and now we have a third child. Right. And so it's interesting how their background plays into, which is interesting because it's like it gives the parents who are very, very absent Mm -hmm. some level of depth, which is a good writing technique to have even your really almost non-existent characters, you understand some of their, right, the psychology behind excuse me, behind them. Yeah, okay. Uh, I wanted to touch on one or two of the actual writing piece of it, yeah. pieces of it as well. One piece of the writing that was confusing to me, which I don't know was maybe it's just me or maybe it was confusingly written, was the little excerpts where we had the handler conversations, right? Is where you had Anderson talking with the other guy. Graf. Yeah, Anderson and Graf talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, is that they were not, like, notated with dialogue that I'm used to of, like, this... Like, there was no indication as which person was saying what, actually. And so I found those slightly confusing. Uh, Not in terms of the conversation they were having and what they meant by what they were saying, but on which person was holding which view for a while and that kind of thing. Like, it it felt like that they jumped back and forth. Like, I, I noticed that those were... They struck me as a little disorienting. No, and that was actually going to be, so I have a couple of questions written down, right? And that was one of my questions was going to be, what were your thoughts on the kind of pseudo dialogue that's happening at the beginning? And it is really disorienting. Eventually you kind of have read enough that you're like, okay, this is clearly Graf and this is clearly Anderson. And every once in a while you get names, especially towards the end. Um, 
But I wonder if that wasn't thrown in to make us feel a little bit disoriented, much like Ender, Mm -hmm. Um, which would be an interesting writing technique is to try and kind of disorient your, right? So this being like the fifth time I've read this book, I was like, oh, this is clearly this character's voice and this is clearly this character's voice and I was able to figure that out much earlier because I've read it several times. Sure. Um, But that was definitely a piece the first time I read it was like, I'm getting this information, but I'm not sure who I'm getting it from. I'm not sure really what's going on and why are they talking about this stuff. And so my best guess would be that possibly it's just you're feeling the disorientation of new information in a similar way that battle school is a new, um, right, is really disorienting to Ender. Mm -hmm. And so those different dynamics and pieces are kind of pulling you as a reader in the same way that Ender is being pulled. Sure. The other, uh, like, writing thing that I found interesting, and you and I had, like, a not a time, but we, we had an interesting conversation out of this. Was I know, because you couldn't wait. You're like, I just have to ask you this one question before I, we actually record our I, podcast. I, I did. Like, we have <laughs> we have tried really hard not to talk anything, but I there know, was one thing that I was like, I need to know about this. Because as I was reading, I came across some surprisingly racial language in the book that I was like, well, number one, these are, like, little kids still. So, like, despite their intelligence, uh, like, being super genius level, it was curious to hear that kind of language. Uh, and so I was like, Dis- like, is this in it? Is this something that I missed? Like, what's happening with you? And you were looking at your book, and you're like, no, it's not in there. Yeah, no, it's not in my version of the book. So And so we actually looked it up, and before a certain year... 1980 like, or something like that? Something along those lines, like a Let's new see. version. It got updated, and some of that was changed or taken out. Before the 1985 version. So originally it was published in 1977, and in that one it does use some racial slurs in one conversation where... One of the kids is calling another kid a name, uh-huh. and Ender pops off using another different derogatory um, racial language, and a Card goes on record saying the purpose of that was to be like, you don't get to use racial language if you're going to use it like in this mean way, like I'm going to show you how bad this is, or something like that. Sure. But it ended up having such a negative effect on audiences that in the republication in 1985, they took that out. So my version is the 1991 version, and it has zero racial language in it other than obviously the derogatory terms towards the buggers, and the, which are the yeah. aliens. Right, because the like that is a derogatory term towards them in the first place. Yes. That's not what they're officially called, but everybody refers to them as buggers. Yeah, because they're officially like the formics or something like that. Right. Um, But that's kind of what I imagine was like a giant standing up ant with Uh like antenna, because it, right, ants have little antennae things and that's how they communicate kind of like the ansible and all of that. Uh And so it was just, in my mind, that's what I picture is a giant standing up ant. Yeah. And ants have queens and all of that. So that, in my mind, buggers or formics, right, look right. like ants, uh-huh. which may 
is not what they look like in the movie yeah. and is may not be what Orson Scott Card had in mind when he wrote it. Sure. But in my mind, that's what they look like. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't, I, this is like going on. This is not a tangent, but it's, it's kind of the next point is because you said Ansible, that made me think of, of that piece. And it's like, it's so interesting that the Ansible which is their long-range communication thing, so that Ender can actually, like, have some control over all these ships that are light years away, is how he was able to connect with the Queen. Mm. And that's, like, why, like, basically it's kind of like, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Like, (laughs) they they literally couldn't talk to each other. They, it turns out the Formex really were not this super hostile, like, trying to take over, like, trying to, kill earthlings sort of deal like it was miscommunication neither one realized that the other was sentient i believe at at the beginning of it and so that's curious as well yeah well because it was like in the end when he's having like this like moment with the queen and he's realizing she and the other queens were like oh we don't like these people these they basically viewed us, or humans, like ants, mm-hmm. and they're going, these creatures that can't communicate immediately with their thoughts, these creatures yes. that can't share each other's dreams immediately, actually can communicate, actually are sentient, and once they realized that, they laughed. Right. But it was one of those moments of, like, they genuinely didn't think that they were wiping out intelligence intelligence they thought they were right crushing some ants and not a big deal exactly is they thought that they were stamping out like a bug infestation or something on this really juicy looking planet that they wanted yeah kind of deal instead of it being like oh actually they communicate and it's just so wildly different from our like telepathic communication we never even thought to that that was a thing yeah like this is how we communicate so why would it be any different well, and it's interesting that all along they're called the buggers, and then they view humans as basically bugs. Right. So it's each side viewing the other as as insects, not as sentient beings. Right. Right? And then there's that whole idea of the other, and each is the other, mm-hmm. you know, quote-unquote. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they were another human faction, then it would be, like, propaganda to dehumanize them kind of a thing, right? Yes. Like, that would be... Which the... we've seen throughout history and actual human history. But... Sure. Um, used both ways, right? Yeah. Both to uh, dehumanize, like, an opponent so that there's, there's not as much... Uh, conflict over being against them but also uh like in a um not positive but like an additive way of intimidating others as well right yeah um let's see the other thing one of my main thoughts that i've always had um both when i watched the movie but as like that i returned to with reading was that I have always found it curious the emphasis that there was on battle school, mm. uh, given that Ender's final like purpose in Ender's game was to become like this fleet commander. And is it command school? Is that the yes, next one? Command school is so you go okay. to battle school and then you go to command school. That's what I thought. So for like given that they ultimately want him to end up in command school and command ships. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was weird 
it's always struck me as a little weird that they had him do battle school first or that battle school is a thing. Like, it almost feels like that they should be separate things in the sense that, like, I I don't know. I'm of two minds about it because okay. I, will, I will start with why it doesn't make sense and then okay. I will move to why I think it makes sense. I don't think it makes sense because it feels strange given the time constraints that they're on and like all of the agenda worries that they have that they would not catapult Ender as quickly to that as they could in terms of having him actually in command school doing like the ship simulations learning how to command the fighters and then the larger ships and be so like knowledgeable and familiar with that system itself Mm -hmm. like kind of just the idea of specializing right is like i think it's weird that they didn't choose to just super specialize him towards the one specific goal of we need you to be the best ever at this one specific thing and that's that right like i think it's interesting that they did all of the teammates and all of the this and all the like physical and learn about zero g and this and that and the other like, with your own body fighting physically rather than always doing the simulations, always getting used to how that works, right? Okay. So I, I feel like that that was curious because then it, it feels like then he has less time commanding than he could have had. Like, he could have had much, much more time spent doing the command pieces that he was ultimately needed for Instead of the, like, ray gun doing flips, like, freezing your knees, all this kind of stuff. Okay. Now, that being said, I also understand functionally why battle school makes sense. Like, if you think about humans in general, like, especially for his age, developmentally and everything, is it does make a lot of sense for him to learn how to do teamwork with other people and to learn about, like, how you or- orient your body in space, like, kind of uh, just a general, like, 3D perception kind of deal. Yeah. Like, I, I can see how uh, for learning how to manipulate the scenarios with Zero-G and, like, which way is up and which way is down, because that's a huge, huge concept. It is, is. The fact that Ender comes in and revolutionizes everyone's thinking with, like, you always view your objective as down below you and this and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like, it's that's a, a, like a How paradigm shift. How you orient shift. yourself, yes. Yeah. But I, I just thought it was always curious that there was, like, this emphasis on them physically fighting each other with pistols in this zero-G room that, I don't know, like, I haven't done that, so maybe it translates towards, like, doing the 3D simulations commanding ships more than I think it does but it's always just felt like kind of a weird like if you wanted him to be really super awesome at commanding ships like just have him do more of that but I think it's building the knowledge right like that's what school does in general or it should do is build your knowledge so I feel like going to battle school first makes sense. If they immediately sent him to command school, I think as a six-year-old he would have been way too overwhelmed. Whereas if you read, like, as they're going through, the progression that Ender makes through battle school is on a highly paced up pace, oh, right? right? Like yeah. 
which is a poor way of describing it, but I'm blanking on a better way to say that of, right? And it's like, at some point undergoes the, the teachers don't care about us attending classes. The teachers don't care that we're failing all of our classes. Bat or like the game, not the game room, the battle room is the only thing that matters. These battles between the different armies yeah. and that are the only thing that matters. But I think he needed to learn, okay, how does this work? What does it mean to be a soldier? What does it mean to work within a tune, right? Because instead of saying platoon, they use tunes, yeah. right? And what does it mean to be a tune leader? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to then command multiple tunes, right? I think all of that was building skills that he had to have in order to go to command school and be like, I've built up this knowledge of how do I learn people's strengths? Yeah. How do I learn their weaknesses? How do I use them within my command to the best of their ability? Uh-huh. And how do I trust the people I've put in charge to do what I'm asking them to do and not micromanage them. And I think those are all skills he learned at battle school mm-hmm. that he needed to learn before going to command school. Because if even though intelligence-wise, he probably would have fit right in at command school, I think there's a lot, because he was only six, that he did developmentally need to grow within a smaller battle school where there weren't really, other than the teachers, adults, in a situation that was more familiar. Mm-hmm. And so from a right educational psychology perspective, that to me actually makes sense that you would want to, but they, right, they sped up the pace, they threw different things at him within, or within battle school. Yeah. And so I think... Right, there was just a ton of manipulation of him there, but it makes sense that they would want to send him to high school to learn a couple things before sending him off to college, or you know, whatever you want to be your equivalencies. Sure. Of going, okay, yes, you're intelligent enough to go to college, but socially, you need to learn some things. You need to interact with some people who are a little bit closer to your age, who are a little bit closer to you can still learn some things from socially um, before you move, right? Because he learned from Bonzo something, right? They put him with Bonzo and then Rose the Nose and all of these different leaders where he can learn, this is what I shouldn't do. This is maybe some good things. These are some good people, right? All the different dynamics that go into that. So I think from a psychological and sociological perspective he needed battle school not from a pure intellectual perspective but but from those other places he did sure now so since you've mentioned psychology sociology do you think on that same topic do you think that ender is any less relatable as a person due to like that outward performance perfection that he has we get a lot of internal thinking and like his doubts and fears and uh like even his like bout of depression when Mm -hmm. between battle school and command school when they're at the lake house and he's kind of just like real i don't care like stop manipulating me like they can they can come and take us all out doesn't like he he would really lost his motivation at that point because he was so beaten down yeah well and you realize even that was a manipulation right Mm -hmm. of 
graph is going, you need to relearn how to love Earth and what you're fighting for and trying to save. Right, exactly. Is is It was totally uh, another manipulation, another, like, him pulling strings to try yeah. and make everything work. Um, but do, back to the question, yes. is do you think that Ender is less relatable because of the, like, never lost the battle school battle totally paradigm shifted the entire place like there's there's pieces of his genius that and i'm not saying that i found it less difficult or i'm not saying that i found it much much more difficult because i think you give it you get enough internal from ender to still kind of get a sense that he is a person with all the thoughts and doubts and fears and like trying to figure life out Mm -hmm. um but I was curious on your your thoughts of that because he does have a pretty, uh, you know, miraculous record, like yeah. win streak, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I think it doesn't, as a reader, make me identify less with him in the sense because, much like you said, you get so much of his internal struggle that you don't see him as like this cocky person who's just winning all these battles and able to do it effortlessly like he actually has to put some thought into it he really struggles with different pieces he struggles to be a good leader and how does he actually do this as a 10 year old an 11 year old right when he's finally put into commands but i think his perfection or his appearance of perfection also helps you understand why different characters at battle school hate him Mm -hmm. Right? Like, why Bonzo has such beef with him, and why different characters would side with Bonzo, especially if the teachers are like, basically, battle school or the battle room is the only thing that matters. And if you're losing, then guess what? You don't get the prestige of going to command school. You're basically going to be, you know, bugger fodder on the, you know, front lines or whatever. And so I just think that there's a piece of it where his record and his perfectionism makes you understand why other kids don't like him. Mm -hmm. But ultimately you know about enough about his internal pieces that you still find him a overall likable character Mm -hmm. because it really is a struggle for him. And you're going, these are things, right? Like as a teacher, there were times where the graph and other teachers are manipulating him that I'm going, Oh, the teacher in me is dying. I just want to go in and hug all of these little children and be like, it's okay, kiddos. It's okay. Well, and Ender really had a a very surface level choice in deciding to go and do all this. Like he he technically, you know, free will decided to go and do it instead of have a normal life. But there's also a piece of it that was like, even that was like very much a you know, would you like to have this super awesome, amazing rock star life? Or would do you want to be, do you want to just like go on to your next thing or whatever? And so like, yeah. there's a piece of it where even in that offer of normalcy versus something great that played on Ender's desire to like get his sister's love and to get his brother's love, like almost more importantly. Yeah. Because he really all, he he had Valentine's love, right? Yeah. It, it was more about um, doing something and, like, making her proud and everything and, and making the family proud. But her, he always wanted his brother's love. That was yeah. one of the major things is, yes. is he just wanted him to love him. So No, I think that that was a big part of Ender was his desire for both love and affection from his family. I think it's why 
when he takes his three-month sabbatical between battle school and command school, like, he's like, definitely don't want to see Peter. Peter never loved me, never cared about me. Like, uh-huh. that would just be well, bad. Well, he literally traumatized him, right? Yes. Because Peter is a recurring kind of nightmare character, uh, especially, like, within his little game simulation things, right? Well, it's so like, that's one of my questions, is Ender... what did you think of the game and of... Right, all of the mind game and how that worked. Because obviously there's a lot of psychology within the mind game. It's the reason that they have the mind game is for different psychological purposes. So I'm really curious what your thoughts on the mind game were. Well, I, I'm really curious about like how much of it was engineered or how it was programmed or, or whatever to like even what its goal was with it. Because yeah. at one point Ender was kind of feeling like uh, that it basically just rewards violence, right? Like, the yeah. more violent that that I am, the more stuff that I kill and rip apart and everything, the better I do, like, with the game, right? Like, yeah. that's every obstacle that he comes to within playing the game is something that, like, ultimately, like, figuring out how to kill the adversary is how, is how he wins, right? It's like yeah. every single time that he goes and dies at the giant, eventually he realizes, like, he just has to totally destroy the giant. Like, yeah. that's... So it's kind of interesting from that, and then, like I said, Peter shows up continually in, in Even that. within the mind game, yeah. Right. Um, Which plays into his fear of, like, he's becoming Peter because he's becoming so violent in some ways. Yes. And he hates that about himself. Exactly. It's like he feels like it's necessary to, to push forward, but he also hates it because he, the, like, he just doesn't want to be that way. So, literally, my question with that is, do you think the mind game pulled Peter's picture, right? Like, when he's in that room at, after he kills the giant and he's gone through the thing and he somehow ends up in this tower repeatedly. Yeah. And he looks in the mirror and he keeps seeing himself as Peter. So, do you think the mind game pulled Peter's picture to remind Ender of what he shouldn't become? That as long as he remembers Peter, he'll actively work to not be him? Or do you think there was some other purpose in the mind game, right? Because that was one of Graf and Anderson's conversations was where did he get, where did the mind game get that picture? That's a really recent school photo. So, like, it would have had to have pulled it from Earth, like, yesterday type of thing. How Uh did it get that? Why do you think the mind game pulled that? I don't know. I mean, I I can only assume... So here here's my, like, total just coming up with it as I go stream of consciousness theory. I wonder if it was not the game uh, continually training Ender to conquer obstacles by recognizing that that was an obstacle in his life because mm-hmm. while, like, the program, the game itself is wasn't like given that information necessarily if it was able to access the information networks that had uh inders monitor in mm-hmm. them then it would have had however much of his life uh with the monitor of yeah. getting bullied and everything else uh getting threatened all of the stuff that peter did right like yeah when inder still had the monitor in him and so i wonder if it didn't pull at that because it recognized that Peter was an obstacle that he needed, that he hadn't overcome yet, right? Like, that that was something that he still hadn't beaten. And so it kind of, it almost was like, you've beaten all these external challenges that don't really matter to you. 
here, let me give you something that's, like, personally disturbing to you that you have to conquer, too. Okay. That's a fun thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so another one of the questions I wrote is, obviously winning the bugger war is important to humanity, but what are any of these kids supposed to do, right? Any of these kids that are really no longer kids, they're, they've been soldiers in a war, basically. Sure. What are they going to do after the war, right? Like, I know the kids are resilient. Kids overall are resilient, but if adults suffer from PTSD after, like, serving in the military, how much more are these children who have literally eaten, Mm -hmm. slept, breathed war for the majority of their very short lives? Like, what are they, what are they going to do? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and who's going to take care of them too, right? Yeah. Because I, I can't, uh, pretend to know a heck of a lot about soldiers returning from the military, but I, I know a couple of things, and I know that there's the psychological piece that you're talking about with, like, PTSD, uh, and just those experiences in general, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's not even that it's, like, the di- it has to be diagnose- diagnosable PTSD, if, and otherwise it's not an issue or something, right? Yeah. Like, there's an understanding that it's, like, there's levels of severity there, and that all of those things are something that should be addressed. But there's also the practical piece of like, how do you translate these different skills that you've learned in the military to the job market, right? Like how, yeah. how do you put this on a resume? How, how does this translate to quote unquote real life or normal life or civilian life would be the actual term. Yes. There we go. Civilian, civilian life. life. Um, so that's, that's the piece of that where like for them, is kind of the same thing is I, I don't know that there's anything for them to do. If we see that at the end of it, Ender decides like to do like manual almost manual labor, uh like ship repair. At the at the well, end. He's for... like doing zero G like working on ships, right? Well for a little bit before they sent that's what he's doing prior to them sending him to the new planet to be the governor and to basically be in charge of because they're like you're really good at being in charge you're really good at problem solving and thinking through things right like valentine's gonna join you and you're going to colonize one of the bugger planets right so but that was a leap for ender in the sense that uh like kind of i don't know i i get the sense that what he chose to do was like i just want to be left alone like i just i just want to like tinker with my own little like projects or something like that like i i don't want to have to almost like just total burnout like i don't want to think anymore like i just want to sit here and work with my hands and not be bothered with all these problems like i have this big great problem solving mind but i am so sick of getting used and abused yeah no and i think that there's great truth to that um right but i also think that there is a piece of eventually he would get bored with that. Now, it may not hit for a little while because he was so, so, so burned out. Mm -hmm. But I think eventually, right, I kind of think of it like, again, I'm going to relate it to education and being a teacher, is, right, when summer first comes, teachers are like, praise everything, right? Like, we can breathe, we can sleep, we can do nothing and just lay out by the pool and enjoy the sun and and not do anything but by the end of summer there's an antsiness and almost like 
okay, now I'm a little bit ready. Like, there's a piece of not being ready for mm-hmm. the school year, but there's also a piece of, like, I, I'm a little ready. Sure. And so that's how I feel with Ender, is he was kind of in doing the manual labor where he didn't really have to think, where no one was looking to him, no one was whatever, that he, it was the start of his summer where he's like, I just need to breathe. Yeah. But I think eventually it would have gotten old. That's, that's fair. And that's, my experience relates that in the sense that I've done, uh, like, professional office work and I've done manual labor and both of them have their ups and downs, right? Is like, I, I've found... Uh, the balance in both of those things but yeah. but I can understand how both of them get old as well right like yeah. there's there's pieces to each that I, I mean it's work is work right yes. like there, there's pieces of, of everything that you recognize like these are the benefits these are the downsides like does this actually work for me over a long period of time will this make me happy all those kind of things yeah I'm looking at my notes and that idea of what do the kids do afterwards makes, makes me think of another novel I've read, which is A Long Way Home, um, which is where, the based on the true story of Ishmael Bea, I think I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but maybe not, um, who was a child so, soldier in Sierra Leone. Mm. And he spends months at this almost like, transitional halfway house type of thing of how do you go from being a child soldier to returning to civilian life sure and how some of the kids didn't and ended up back on the front lines and drinking and smoking and doing drugs Mm -hmm. and how he was able to eventually transition out of that yeah and the difficulty of that right um which you can understand from the the perspective of like that as as destructive as all of those things can be um and and you know most of the time are there's also an element to it where it's like how do you return to something more mundane and more like level you know a more leveled out area of existence than all of the highs that you would get with that right like all the adrenaline rush and everything of living that way that's fair um Although I don't know that Ender was that way. I don't think that Ender really ever had, like, this adrenaline rush of all those things. Like, there's a piece of enjoying the games that he had, and, like, he he enjoyed winning for a time. At the beginning. But actually, like, real quickly, it just became pressure that Mm -hmm. was, like, maintaining the record, maintaining all of his people trying to figure out how to continue to win when they're like changing his team up on him and giving him worse people and giving other people better people that know all of his tactics and so like there was a lot of they did everything they possibly could to mess with him yeah and so it was like it was certainly not enjoyable by the time he was done yeah actually you saying that and i know you're not going to love this comparison because this was not your favorite movie but ender feeling that pressure to win we recently watched Encanto. I know you're rolling your eyes even as I say this, but it makes me think of Louisa's song of like pressure, right? Like a drip, 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 and it never stops. Yeah. And I think that that song ultimately almost kind of characterizes Ender in that he starts off and it's kind of fun at the beginning. He's doing these really new things. He enjoys taking a command. And he's and then, really good at everything. And he's really right? good at it, yes. But then similarly to that song of right? Like, 
pressure or whatever it is um, that Louisa sings in Encanto, right? He quickly is like, oh, I'm not allowed to lose. Like, the teachers are setting me up to fail, but I cannot lose. I'm not allowed to lose. And there's this pressure and this stress he feels over having to be perfect and having to not ever lose, to never give in to that pressure that adds way more pressure. So I feel like actually that song from Encanto Mm -hmm. is like Ender's Ender's song as well. Sure. Yeah, well, and because it's like it's the unfairness of what they're doing in all of the different ways because it's the different teams, it's the different expectations, it's the like significant ramping up of the amount of time that they spend in the battle room and... The, the fact that they, like, will send them out for kind of, like, double games, like, just... Yeah, they're like, we just battled! Yep, we get to battle again, right. suit up. Which was totally unheard of. As mm-hmm. much like Ender paradigm shifted the way that all of the teams worked mm-hmm. uh, with his, like, downward strategies and, like, self-locking their, their limbs and yeah. everything to kind of act as pseudo-shields and all that kind of stuff... It was the same with, like, the teachers as they paradigm shifted the way that they treated him because, as a result of it. Yeah. Well, and Anderson totally messed with the game. Mm-hmm. And it was like, technically Ender could win, but we're going to stack it and just totally mess with the game and mm-hmm. set him up so that he has, like, a 1% chance of winning. But he does have that technical 1% chance. Sure. So it's just, yeah. Interesting. Um, Mazer Rackham was mm, not, yeah. honestly, was not as impactful as of a character as I potentially expected. Okay. Um, I'm again, I'm not going to talk too much movie stuff, but I had a little bit of a thing from the movie with him, and I had heard, like through people talking about it, that like he was much like it was much different in the book mm-hmm. and it was different in the book obviously yeah but there was also a piece of it where he he didn't play the role that I expected him to play necessarily like yeah he, he was not it's not that he really taught Ender all these things like in this like master apprentice relationship or teacher student relationship like it was like he told him certain things but it was more like that he was just a bigger, badder boss for Ender to be, right? Like, he yeah. was the real-life version of the giant of, like, yeah, you're going to do simulations against me, and I'm going to crush you in every way possible, and once you beat me, then you're ready to move on to the real thing. Yeah. No, and I would say that that's true, is that Mazerakum, honestly... I understand that they, like, sent him out and sent him back and used, like, time, light speed, whatever, to Mm -hmm. keep him young enough to teach Ender. But I'm going, honestly, the only thing that he taught Ender was the fact that the buggers communicate instantaneously to each other. And if someone else had, like, if he had just written it down and, like, hey, whoever you end up deciding to be the person like here it is because he didn't really teach him anything new aside from that or maybe somehow we missed it but it felt like that was the biggest thing he taught him which was a necessary piece well i think it was because as a tactician like i because mazer for a time what i think was programming the the command school 
like mm-hmm. adversaries, okay. right? Like is at a certain point, yes. obviously Ender starts fighting the real battles. Yeah. Uh, even though Ender doesn't know it at the time. Yes. Uh, but I think that there was. I think Mazer was programming some of the simulations against him at the beginning. Yeah. I assume maybe not. Maybe maybe it was always different and Mazer was just there to like keep up the the thought of it. I don't know. I I think it was because it was like he says you're now going to be facing me and then at the end he tells Ender you never faced me. Every single time, every one of those battles was against the buggers. So I don't think he programmed any of it. Mm. He was, like, Ender learned different pieces. I really, I'm trying to remember back, but I don't feel like he did a whole lot. Maybe he just kind of, like, bolstered Ender's... Do you, now, do you think that the threat from the buggers was legitimate? Or do you think that that was a manipulation? In order for them to just wipe out these enemies that they didn't want around. Do you think that there was a legitimate threat of, like, the buggers coming in and quashing humanity and, and invading again? No. Because... That's in the Speaker for the Dead, right? Like, in the very end of the book. Um, let me get to this. That's what I thought. Especially given, like, the power of the weaponry and everything that humanity had with those big, like, shockwave cannons or whatever they were called that just totally obliterated like the chain reaction kind of cannons that they had yeah no it's because he sees it in right like at the very end in the chapter that's called speaker for the dead when he is learning about the buggers and the old queen and all of that sort of stuff right like i'm trying to find it i can't find it right that um the old queen didn't realize and when they realized that um, they were sentient beings, they wouldn't, they weren't going to attack. And then when the Hive Queen sees all the lights, um, right, it literally says, the Hive Queen felt sadness, a sense of resignation. She had thought, not thought these words as she saw the humans coming to kill, but it was in words that Ender understood her. The humans did not forgive us, she thought. We will surely die. Ah, right. And so, right, like, there was the first kind of, like, tentative, like, oh, here's a fun planet. Uh And then they sent a, like, invasion party to kind of a colonizing party to settle it. And when Mazer Rockham killed them, they were like, oh, oh, these are actually people. These are actually sentient beings type of things. They were not going to come. So the them going right which so that that is the case then that humanity totally was just it is again they were manipulating ender and the situation and everything to be like there's this dire threat that we're not going to survive i don't know maybe they believed that that was the case i think they did i think they genuinely believed that because i guess ender's communication with the queen like through the ansible was really what uh, like that was the moment of revelation for Ender, and it's I don't know. It that wasn't anyone through else the Ansible. Knew. There wasn't an. It was the Ansible was what allowed the, the queen, queen to, to get learn Ender's mind to learn Ender's mind. It wasn't until he's trying to find a new place to colonize on one of the old, um, right bugger planets that he finds a replication of 
the mind game and of the giant's head that's had the overgrowth and of the tower and right. he opens up the mirror that right shouldn't exist and then he finds the baby hive queen right, right. and is like oh and then when he touches the baby hive queen that's he suddenly he gets, gets the different flashes which inspires his novel right the speaker for the dead and he tells the story of the hive queen sure and so it's in that moment that he realizes, oh, they weren't coming for a third invasion. But I think humanity, because there had been two invasions, yeah. because what humans would have done is we would have taken us out. Sure. Right? And so our natural reaction was to put our thoughts on the buggers, right? Human thoughts on the buggers and saying, oh, if we were in the buggers' place, we'd be like, all right, we're going to come back with a bigger, badder army, you little peons. Like, we're going to take you out. And so we got to, as humans, we got to stop that. So we're going to go after the buggers, kill them before they kill us type of thing, right? Sure. And so I think it's another way that the buggers and the humans miscommunicate is obviously, right, how we talk is mouth-to-mouth or, you know, words-to-words, sound waves, whatever, whereas the buggers communicate telepathically. Mm-hmm. So how the communication within each race is very different, which causes communication issues between the two races, right. but also just how they think, sure. right? Buggers aren't humans. And so how they think is very different. And when they realized, hey, there's sentient beings, uh-huh. it seems like, oh, we're not going to invade them again. And humans are like, take them out, take them out, take them out. Yeah, no, because everything, uh, like all of our communication is physical, whether it's auditory or like sign language or uh, yeah. what, whatever it is. It's all like something we physically have to do Yeah. rather than just like the mind linking that they have. So Yeah, no, unfortunately... Or fortunately, we are not telepathic, right? We're not more, Professor more, X. More we're fortunate. not. More we're not Jean Grey. Not. Yes. Most of the time, it's really good that we don't know what each other is thinking. Oh man. Especially because then you'd really realize how many tangents I go on. <laughs> yeah, you do go on so many tangents, my love. Um, do you have more points to cover? Or are you pretty happy with that? Um, I mean, I definitely took some more notes and wrote some more things, but I think we've covered the bulk of different pieces. I know that we jumped around a ton. So if you haven't read Ender's Game, none of this is going to make any sense. And realistically, you should have paused this podcast long, long ago in order to actually read the book and then come back and be like, oh, yeah, I see these different pieces and realize that we jumped the mess around these 15 chapters. There you go. Um, But I do believe we covered pretty much everything that I had written notes down on. But... I think this is kind of where we're good and we're going to pause. So please join us next time as we read through one of Spencer's favorite novels. And thank you for joining us on the SNK podcast.